0: You're listening to A Call to Lead, a different kind of leadership podcast. Brought to you by SAP, the world's largest provider of enterprise application software. SAP engineers solutions
1: to help companies become best-run businesses by transforming industries, growing economies, lifting up societies, and sustaining our environment. Because it's the best-run businesses that make the world run better. And now your host, Jennifer Morgan.
0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's podcast. My guest today is Frances Fry. She is an incredible TED Talk speaker. She's one of the most sought after professors at Harvard Business School. She did a stint at Uber as their SVP of Culture and Strategy. And she is here today to tell us a little bit about her new venture, the Leadership Consortium with Harvard Business School. She's going to tell us all about that. What do I love about Frances? I met her about four years ago. She came to speak at one of my events, and we became friends, and she is one of those people who will teach you so much about yourself. You will walk away from a conversation with Frances feeling smarter, more inspired, more in touch with your strengths and the things you can do better. She leaves you wanting more, so I can't wait for you to meet her. We're going to have a great conversation. Okay, so I'm here today with Francis Fry, and I'm so excited to be with you, Francis. It, we've known each other for, I think, four years now. But I can't remember the before. I know, exactly. Yeah. We have so much to talk about. Yes. This Please. might have to be a multi part podcast. Um, okay, so, Francis, first of all, you're super well known from your TED Talks. That's how you and I connected because I was amazed by your TED Talks. I got to see just the incredible following you have at, at Harvard Business School. But I think one thing that Everybody saw um, playing out in the front page of every newspaper was what what was happening with Uber, right? With um, a lot of the changes happening there, and next thing you know, in the midst of all of that, in the midst of a new CEO coming in, you actually were kind of in the middle of all of that. It, it, your experience, tell us about Uber and how did you end up at Uber? Yeah, no, it's a
1: great it's a great question, and I hadn't really thought much or heard much about Uber until I got somebody reached out to me in. March of 2017. So it was when they had there was this blog and the whole company's crisis was really coming mm-hmm. to a head. And um somebody reached out and said, who was a student of mine, said, Will you come and meet with Travis? Uh and i uh I said, you know, just hold one minute. And I read the newspapers and I was like,
0: mmm, right.
1: doesn't look like a good idea to me. I like to help good people win. And I was like, from the newspaper doesn't look to me like it's good people. And uh, she was like, I promise you, you're going to like him. He wants to, he's good. He wants to do better. The organization wants to do better. You do it as a favor. So I went there literally thinking I was going to go spend two days with them. And uh, I started spending time with Travis and with the rest of the organization. I think before I joined full-time, which was June 1st, I had taught or worked with 1,500 of the 15,000 employees. So I did, like I worked in every corner trying to find like the bad people, Mm -hmm. um, the reason to not do it. And I have to say that it was super well-intentioned people who were missing critical secret memos Mm -hmm. on how to work with one another, how to lead, but all the things that I knew how to teach, but they had goodness within them, which I can't teach. So it was after doing that, I started on June 1st. Now, I did not expect to be there without Travis. He ended up leaving. How like, soon after? Like 12 days. Wow. Um, and then Dara didn't start until right after Labor Day. So we had our executive leadership team for those three months. And I was, the board asked me to facilitate the executive leadership team over the summer. And so that was quite a surprise, but we got a lot done um, Because my diagnosis when I was there in the beginning was that Travis, and I think to create hyper growth, Mm -hmm. he really had partitioned each senior leader off from all of the rest of the senior leaders. He's like, you go work on this. Mm -hmm. I'll protect you from everything else. You go work on this. You go work on this. But as a result, they didn't have the team muscle. And they also didn't benefit from one another on their decisions. So the first thing we did when they asked me to facilitate the senior team, which at the time was 12 people, like okay but only if you add four more people and everyone thought it was crazy i mean academics from around the world everyone they were like what are you doing but i knew with 12 with four more people it would be collectively exhaustive and there would never be any reason to go to someone outside the room and then we would have unprecedented speed the other thing i asked for which sounds crazy but i didn't want any extra decision rights What does that mean? So I didn't want to be the tiebreaker on anything. So I was facilitating the senior team, but they, if this group was used to having a tiebreaker Mm -hmm. and so they would not wrestle with things very long, Ah, they'd just go ask Travis. They delegated upward. And I knew what we needed was that, but I also hate consensus because it leads to mediocrity. So the, the team had to come to great decisions, sometimes disagree and commit, And there was a lot of fear that it wasn't going to work, but it worked with great speed. And we, uh, I don't think we've undone a single decision that we made that summer. That's um, amazing. Which is really incredible.
0: What was the biggest surprise for you? Like the biggest learning for you? Obviously, you have a lot of experience in this field. Yeah. What was your biggest like, wow? Well,
1: the the thing that I had never heard of, but the board dynamics playing out in the press Mm -hmm. um, was very surprising to me. I wasn't used to a company even being that familiar with the board. And then I guess the board had a lot of turmoil and mm. the people in the company were asking about the board. It just, it was a, that was a surprise and a distraction that was, right? I think, unprecedented. Yes. Um, um in terms of that the other surprise was i was you know i think maybe 20 people left the company in june of that year not or not many more than that and i was just surprised at how many good people there were there that just needed role models or education to overcome you know some of the behaviors that they had
0: so you spend obviously you've spent a lot of time um teaching and coaching others but you also spend a lot of time you you work with a lot of different ceos and c suites i mean uber's yeah. one example yeah right So how does that, the combination of studying it, of teaching it, but also experiencing it, why is that important to you? Well, I I feel like you are like this incredibly dynamic kind of different mold, right? I do have a taste
1: for not just studying it, but for doing it. Yes, And that comes from my desire to get things done. The best way I can get things done is through others. But sometimes that's not sufficient. Mm -hmm. That is, if... I can do it at greater speed or with greater quality, I would prefer to be involved. But if, but usually I'm the bottleneck. So then I don't, so then I want to coach others to do it. Uber offered me, I mean, what a once in a lifetime opportunity. That was a context. I had seen the challenges there before, save the ones with the board, but not in that context. I got to learn so much, mm. and I got to, the opportunity to try my hand. Now it was on a very public stage. I wouldn't have chosen right. that. I, uh, if you look at how often I was in the press before that, not. Right. Um, so I'm very grateful for the opportunity. That's not how I would choose to live my life. Right. Um, right. I like the going back uh, to HBS, but I now I do like visiting organizations and and taking active roles but i'm not a person that stays for a long time so the mm-hmm. thing about me the second someone else can do it i want them to do it yes i have no desire to do something for one moment longer than when someone else can do it yeah um and so i stayed at uber for nine months um each role i had at hbs i stayed i was there pretty quickly and then we made a lot of progress and then once it was handed off to someone else the progress didn't go away; it just
0: continues to go up, mm-hmm. which is my view of what real leadership is about. Well, and that's been my experience with you because it's funny when I when I was describing you to to somebody um, that you you were going to actually spend time and mentor. I said, you know, Frances will come in, and she can understand you very quickly. She will really make you face yourself and kind of tear you down, and not in a negative way. Like make you really, really understand what you're saying, what you're thinking, what you're feeling and have that person really be able to kind of self-actualize that. And and you take people on this journey of learning, of discovering things about themselves, Which things is, that are happening on the outside. a much better
1: description of what I, it's better than I would have described. I, I like that description very but what much. I, but
0: what I like about it is you, you, it's not just about trying to teach somebody how, how to do it. You're trying to understand the, what's going on in, yeah. in their psyche, sharing your perspective and bringing out the best. And it's like, and so the, they can learn. And then learn, you move on.
1: Yeah. And, and one, again, not wanting to be there. Like you're being good in my presence. Yeah. Like that's right. like almost of no value. And I do want to try to find the ways for you to learn it yes. as opposed to for me to teach it, yes. if, that makes, uh, I, if that makes sense. And
0: Francis, I got to think that, that your style fits really well with CEOs. So when you meet with, with CEOs today, I mean, with everything that's happening in this world, with I mean, the challenges that CEOs and leaders today face yeah. is unprecedented. You were talking about kind of this out, the outside world, the publicity, the geopolitical yeah. environment. What are some of the things that they come to you and say, help me muscle through this problem? You know, um, I think one of the
1: things I do is I help get to the root of the underlying diagnosis. So often, whatever a CEO comes with me as the problem, it's, not, it's often not the problem. But through our working with it, we get to what the underlying problem is. So they'll be like, here's a problem, and these prescriptions aren't working. And more often than not, the diagnosis wasn't right, which is why the prescriptions weren't right. So then we get to the underlying diagnosis. And then prescriptions, they're like super clever at coming up with prescriptions as soon as the accurate The right diagnose. problem. they're solving the wrong problem. Yes.
0: That's a great way to say it. That's a great. Okay. So, so talking about leadership for a second. So you've got one of the most sought after classes at HBS and one of your classes is leadership lessons from ancient Rome. Okay. Can you please explain? (laughs) (laughs) Where does that come from? Yeah.
1: So it comes from uh, Emma Dench, who is a classics professor at Harvard is now uh, one of the deans for the graduate school, which is a wonderful selection of, of deans. And, uh, when she says the word we, she means the year 400 or earlier. So that's, I met her, uh, Drew Faust had a task force. She and, uh, Emma and I were on it. We got to know each other. And I innocently said to Emma, I just adored her. She thought so differently than me and, and had such different contexts. I just wanted to be around her more and more. And I said, I will do anything with you. And then she came back to me two months later and said, let's teach together. I was like, I have never read history and <laughs> you're at 400 and earlier. Right. Unless you're thinking about studying right. business, this isn't going to work. Right? She was like, I'll teach you. So she tutored me on um, a very curated, beautiful view of ancient texts. And then we taught to MBA students leadership lessons from ancient Rome. So we gave texts that we gave the Latin trans- Latin on the left, English translation on the right, and 66 MBA students um, took this unbelievable class that was meant to be an installation, so meant to only be taught once because she and I were coming together. We all learned a ton, and then it was meant to be disbanded, which is not usually how we yeah. teach classes. We try to amortize and things. No amortizing, one-time installation, and uh, it was one of the most amazing things I've ever, I've ever experienced, not the least of which is to watch the courage of Emma Dench walk from the classics over to HBS, yeah. face the MBA students, and, was like, and just made ancient Rome come alive. And got to the, we got to the leadership lessons from there that could apply to modern context. Totally, it stays with me. Uh, I think about lessons from ancient Rome every day.
0: What well, kind of opens up like a. You, you can look at that in so many ways and say, there's so much we can learn from different experiences that you don't think are relevant, but can just enhance how, how yeah. you do something, what you know about something. I mean, yeah. what was the feedback from the students on it? Like what, what did they take from it?
1: Uh, so I think that, um, they very much like the modern lessons from the ancient texts. So yeah. the one that I think resonated the most, well, the trust that, um, that you mentioned before that on how to build and rebuild trust. That I hadn't realized it when I was studying it, because back to pathos, logos, and ethos from ancient Rome. Then I got to study it at its roots, and Ah, then come back up again. That makes
0: perfect sense, doesn't it? And then so
1: that one, and then there was another one that I had thought about, but then got the ancient context, which was I often talk about that we need people should experience us as high standards, and they should experience that we're deeply devoted to one another. Well, it turns out that this man Valerius Maximus. 2,000 years ago, was a, he took it upon himself to train, he wrote, I think, the first leadership text. The leadership textbook, that is a book to be read by others. Mostly in ancient Rome, you learned about leadership by getting it passed down from generations and Mm -hmm. generations. Mm -hmm. He wrote a book for everyone else. I mean, for everyone else that could get access to a book. But he told the stories, the leadership parables, Mm -hmm. and he wrote about severity, fidelity, justice. And what you learn is that we want, all want to get to justice, which is high standards mm-hmm. and deep devotion. People experience us as high standards, and they also, we reveal that we're deeply devoted to their success. I have to tell you, all of the students and I, I think about how to spend more time in justice yes. every day.
0: That's that's awesome.
1: It's totally great. Okay, so- And Valmax for short. Once you read them, you get to call them Valmax.
0: Okay. This is, I learned, I just learned a lot. I got a little history lesson and I didn't expect that talking to you to end No no one does. (laughs) Okay, so Francis, when I first, so when I first met you, I had um, an MBA student who was on my team and I was looking for somebody to come speak to my entire company, kind of about leadership, about business, about, I didn't know exactly what, but I wanted somebody who was gonna come and give somebody a completely different perspective. And we found your TED Talk. And it was one of the, it was the, the one on, you know, uncommon service customers. Yeah. It, it was amazing. And that's how you and I met. So I have to ask you, obviously there's, we're gonna, I wanna talk about the content yeah. In, yeah. In, in your TED Talk, but you are an incredible, like how do you communicate? How did you learn to communicate and speak in a way that just like people can not only learn, but feel very, very deeply.
1: Yeah. So I think a lot about, I try to understand deeply so I can describe simply. So that's, that is, um, I, when I was learning math and engineering, uh, people were teaching it to me in a very complicated way. So it were complicated topics being described in complicated ways. And I felt like it was doing a disservice. So I tried to learn complicated things maybe even a little more deeply than my teachers knew it mm-hmm. so that I could describe it simply. So I consider the greatest gift you can give someone is to um, describe a complicated thing in, a, in mm-hmm. a simple way. So that was the, that's like the mm-hmm. first thing um, that I- And you do
0: I, that very, very well.
1: And it's, and, and that's like, and then there was a, a man, Rob Freund, an MIT professor said to me back in 1998, I think it was, he was like, it's not what you cover, it's what you uncover. Mm. And that just, for whatever reason, yeah. that, lit the, that lit it in me that it's what gets uncovered in someone else.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I'm constantly, I can watch you, and if it doesn't appear that you're learning, I'll try another resonant example, and another one, and another one. I won't keep saying the same thing. Yeah. I'll just keep doing it until it's uncovered within you. And then that's like the greatest joy to watch that happen I with have someone. Ex-
0: I have experienced that for Sam. Which is,
1: which is, and you know, so. And then
0: you have a breakthrough.
1: And then you have a breakthrough. And then you can
0: solve the problems like you were saying. Without me. Right.
1: Which is exactly what I want.
0: So, so now we're talking a lot about trust. You just, I think a couple months ago had a really great TED talk about trust. Yeah. What, talk to me about that topic. What interested you in really going deep on that topic? exactly right. And helping, you know, not just talking about it, but like helping people really understand what it means. Yeah.
1: So. I, the observation was that it's, um, if I look at like what what are the bad things that are going on in our society or in companies, a lot of it can be brought down to we have mistrust. And I used to think that perhaps trust is just something you're blessed with. Oh, you trust me or you don't. Mm-hmm. But then with my operations mind, I started deconstructing it and understanding under what circumstances are people trusted in there and what circumstances are they not. And clear patterns emerged. And so i started figuring it out for myself and then as you know as soon as i know something i want to start sharing it Mm -hmm. with the world and so i practiced sharing that with the world i probably talked about it a hundred times before i did it on the ted stage Mm -hmm. to really see that it resonated and i've had countless people tell me that this is why i haven't been trusted and I understand where my wobble is, which is one of the ways we used to, which makes that accessible. Like it's not judgy that you, all of us have a wobble and then here are some techniques to overcome that wobble. So I feel like it makes trust and rebuilding of trust accessible. And I think it's like quite literally one of the most important things of our time is to do this. And I don't mean this in a bad, it's not that hard. Like it's complicated until we understand it simply. And then it's a pebble, not a boulder. And that's what I feel like the, we can sweep away the mistrust if we can just get down to the essence of it um, with everyone. And that's my experience in the world, by the way. It's almost always pebbles, not boulders. Mm -hmm. It's a boulder when we don't understand it. Mm -hmm. But when we get down to the essence of it, it's a pebble and then we can sweep it away.
0: So let's talk about, you know, when you think about people that maybe work for you and as leaders, I believe one of the best gifts you can give to people is the truth. And a lot of times when people have pebbles that get in their way, right, of growing in certain areas, sometimes those pebbles can be quite personal when you have to, when you have to confront somebody about what's holding them back. Yeah. And I would think that, so how do you, how do leaders, the best leaders have to be able to both give the truth, but have the trust from the people to know that that's good. So talk a little bit about that. I
1: will. And, And it's something I suspect you are quite naturally good at. Uh, I've watched you do it. And I think it goes to this high standards, deep devotion. So if the reason I'm giving you the feedback is because I genuinely want you to get better, I'm going to frame it that way versus the reason I'm giving you the feedback is that I want to evaluate you. Mm -hmm. So the difference between development and evaluation, and you're not a fixed pie sort of person. Mm -hmm. Like you believe that all of us can get better and it doesn't have to be at the cost of someone else. And that I think is a crucial part of this. So the real things that are holding us back are personal. They're mm-hmm. deeply personal. Mm-hmm. Um, and imagine when we bring someone to the other side of that, how much better off they are they're going to be, their families are going to be, their children, mm-hmm. everyone that works. So, yeah, it's intensely personal. Um, and, that's, and I think we shouldn't lower the standards because it's personal. But, wow, do we have to reveal that we're deeply devoted to the development of that person.
0: So you've started um, with your wife, Anne. Yeah. The leadership consortium, yes. which we're really excited to be part of. But part, one, of the, one of the things that you're passionate about is exactly what you just yeah. described. And it's interesting because when we focus on some of the emerging talent that we have, um, whether it's underrepresented minorities, whether it's women, you and I have had that conversation about yeah. how many times have we heard that the, the somebody, a woman described as, wow, she's super hardworking, so smart. I mean, just done amazing things, but she's really exhausting. And when you, like, that's that's tough. If, with a male, maybe boss, in that kind of situation, yeah. how do you deal with something like that? Because I see that all the time, I feel yeah. like. Yeah,
1: so there's two things. Either, I mean, what i like to figure out is, is she exhausting or not? Right. If she's not exhausting and being perceived that way, then maybe we have to unle- unlock something in the boss. Okay. But if she really is exhausting, then that's a pebble that we can sweep away for her. And I think... um each of us has the capacity to be exhausting or, mm-hmm. or any one of these things. And we can go through, um, in a trusted way, we can go through that. I find that the intervention as, as it were, mm-hmm. takes about 30 minutes. Like the reason that she's exhausting, which could have lasted a lifetime, it's a pebble mm-hmm. that we can unle we can sweep away and then miraculously she won't be exhausting anymore. And it will. chances are it will be something that traces back to something that helped her get to where she was. Maybe she put some armor on Mm -hmm. or she had to do something. And when we frame it in the right way and she's able to maybe shed that Mm -hmm. and have an even better version of herself and have the courage to do that. So that's if she really is exhausting. But if she's not exhausting, then we have to go and work with the folks that are perceiving it that way, and then they might have some unconscious stuff going on.
0: I mean um, that's a that's a big thing that that you would have to confront with a leader.
1: So this is the, this is why the the leadership consortium, we insist that we get the individual leaders that like so you 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 send the group of people to us, mm-hmm. but that we also get to work with the organization. Yes. Because the organization has to be sanded to accept the acceleration of these individuals.
0: I'm very passionate about the leadership consortium because yeah. I think I don't think it's being done anywhere today. And I think you're forging new ground, but why, why are companies doing that? Do you think today on their own? Yeah. So I, I
1: think that it's super hard in 2018 to see a leadership team that is pretty homogeneous and to conclude we have the best talent in the world. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the, one of the things that companies are waking up to it used, there used to be a, oh what's the business case for diversity? I feel like that's a decade old argument that, um, and people really weren't sure. And they were like, maybe we have to slow down for diversity. And now what the world is realizing is we have only been fishing in a pretty narrow pond. And if we want to compete against the world's best, we got to fish in the whole pond. And so it's the diversity that will actually unleash our excellence. So I feel like companies are now waking up to that but it doesn't mean that they are any more educated about how to lead and manage a diverse team, because yes. we're not born knowing these things. It's simple lessons. It's like everything else we can teach it. But I feel like that's what companies are now asking for help with, mm-hmm. is that I'm really good at leading people who are just like me. How do I also create the conditions for people who aren't like me to thrive?
0: So you, you've said something that I quote often, because I think it's a very powerful statement. The burden of diversity should not be on the diverse. Yeah. Explain
1: 10 years ago, um,
0: I think that it was
1: always up to the diverse to talk about the benefits of diversity. And, and um, you know, it's like the, I want to have a woman on every search committee. Well, if you only have 10% women in your organization, and you're going to ask a woman to be on every search, like, look what we've just done to women. We're like putting the burden of diversity on women. Yes. And that's going to then take away their time. And so what we need to do is have the whole organization get trained on how to source people and how to interview people. It shouldn't just be the diverse. And honestly, I don't want to wait until a person of color is the one that brings up that we are perhaps undermining people of color. I want everyone to be looking at it. Maybe it's a person of color who brings it up, but I want us all to be, Mm -hmm. and this is, you know, for international and domestic. Mm -hmm. It's for every type of difference. I mean, the thing I learned from reading a book by Cornel West that really, really sticks with me is that inclusion for one is not really a very good steady state. It's inclusion for all. So you and I care about women, Mm -hmm. but we also like, but we don't stop there. Everything we know about women, we want to make sure that it's also true for people of color, that it's also true for the LGBT community inclusion for one is inclusion for all mm-hmm. um and so
0: i love it yeah so on the note of women in the news i think it was 2 weeks ago there's you know california's talking about putting quotas in place for women on boards what's your perspective on that i have
1: super that? mixed emotions yeah, about it exactly because, because quotas cannot in my operations brain cannot possibly be steady state as a solution yes. it can't be now do I understand that people get so frustrated in the lack of progress that they want as a temporary fix to put in quotas? I do. I'd probably never be the author of that mm-hmm. because I would just keep trying to find other ways, but I would want that to be obsolete. I wouldn't author it, and I would want it to be obsolete as soon as possible, but I understand people's frustration. Yeah. for, bo- And that's for boards, right? Yeah. Like, But let me... If somebody came to us and they said, we want to add women to the board, how long would it take you and me to find awesome women for that board? We've
0: had this conversation. You asked me for some recommendations for somebody uh, that you knew, and I had like, here you go. It took
1: you like five minutes. That's right. So here's the great tragedy of all of this is that every board is looking for women. You and I know tons and tons of awesome women who have never been asked to be on a board. So we can go ahead and put quotas or we can literally curate and put them on touch. Now, what you did is gave me a perfect curated woman for the board that they're looking for. And what I often say to companies that are looking for a woman, I said, that puts that woman in a really hard position because you're probably going to want that woman to represent women. And that's like really hard. Yeah. So what I often say is clumps, not trickles. I would much rather you bring on three women. Because if you bring in two, people are going to notice, do they sit together? Do they sit apart? Totally are they together? Right. Or are they apart? Yeah. But with its three, it doesn't matter. Yes. And those quotas. That's pro- very
0: true. That's it's very totally true. Even true. if you just go into a meeting. Yeah. It's so, very, very true.
1: So if you were going to use a quota, of which I don't endorse, mm-hmm. three isn't a bad number. Yeah. Yeah. But I would much rather, you and I, there's not a company in the world we couldn't find. Yes. Three women who are like... Who would raise the average quality of their board so that that part then just remains a frustration to me the current ways that we're matchmaking for boards and awesome women isn't working but honestly i think people just have to call you or me and we'll give them lots of connection so the quotas, is i get the frustration i don't love it from my operations brain as a steady state solution
0: what, for you, for somebody like you, when I meet somebody like you, right, and I look at all the experience that you have, like, I wonder myself, like when does she feel intimidated? <laughs> when do you feel intimidated? Huh?
1: I don't feel intimidated, I don't think. Okay. But I will tell you, I feel a deep desire to be worthy of my wife. So I, who, and Anne uh, is one of the most Anne spends more time in that justice quadrant than anyone I've known, high standards and deep devotion. And I just try every day to be worthy of Mm -hmm. what she, of her, quite honestly. And she is really trying to make the world a better place. But intimidated by people, I understand that the world is filled with mortals. Like I don't, Harvard said no to me five times. And each time a mortal made, like I wasn't going to let a mortal get in the way of my life trajectory. So I'm not mortals don't really I'm mortal. I love that
0: perspective, Francis. I just got more confident. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Which I like Like, you're really confident right now. Good. Good.
0: I love that answer. Yeah. That is such a great answer. And even better, it honors your family at the same time. Yes. So Francis, I need to back up a second. You said something that is just sinking in now. You said Harvard rejected you five times. Did I hear you right?
1: Yes. Yeah. So I applied out of high school for college and they said no. I applied out of college for my PhD, they said no. I got my PhD from Wharton and applied to be on the faculty, they said no. Uh, I later joined the faculty. The first time I was coming up for tenure, they said, uh, not now. Um, uh, and so every step of the way, uh, first time I w- was going to a senior associate dean physician, they said no. Um, but when I say they, it's like, it's not, Harvard doesn't make decisions. Mm-hmm the mortals that are in yes. the decision making. And so I really do believe that I'm not going to influence my life's trajectory because of a mortal. Yes. I also then want to take responsibility. I must not have presented myself correctly those five times because if I look at how good of a fit I am at Harvard Business mm-hmm, School, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm a great yeah, fit. Yeah. I think it's worked out pretty well. <laughs> and, yeah, and it feels <laughs> right. But But yet, there were five no's along the way. So I take responsibility for perhaps not presenting myself well well enough. And then I don't condemn any mortals for making those decisions. But we know we all make good and bad decisions. I just know not to let someone else influence my life's trajectory. But
0: you said something. uh, I'm curious. When you say that, you know, taking responsibility for how you, like, were you able to do that at the time of the rejection? The time I was
1: really mad. (laughs)
0: Because I think, really because that's mad. a very uh, yeah. important thing you just said. No,
1: that's a, like, that's what you do at, what you're through the forest okay. and you look back Got at it. the path. Okay. I just, no, all right. I super duper But mad. how can
0: people do that today? Because to your point, I think that's what made you better. That's what helped you get to where yeah. you are today.
1: Yeah. I think it's important to go through being mad. Like, yeah. I couldn't have sublimated that. Yeah. I, I had to be really mad. And then I also knew I had more information than everyone else. I knew I was supposed to be at Harvard. Like I knew that I would be devoted to the students. I knew I would honor the platform. I knew I could do really good research there. Mm -hmm. So part of it was just an information asymmetry. I had more information than they did. And so, but I was, I mean, each time was a devastating life moment for me.
0: That's amazing. And um,
1: but I moved through the emotional part and just got back on the track.
0: Well, I think that's something that um, I love to use this analogy with yoga. So, because I, I, I'm a big believer, I think when when tough things happen to people, a natural tendency is what you just said: people are mad and they resist. They yeah. just want to resist whatever is happening because they don't want to deal with it or have an excuse for it, right? So, what I love about yoga is. You're in these positions that are completely um, unnatural. unnatural. Yeah. You're twisted. Yeah. Y- you, you stop breathing. And all you want to do is get out of it, right? You're resisting it. And when you finally just say, let me see what this feels like, and you lean into it, um, you realize, I can do this. It's not as bad as I thought. And then when you get out of the posture, you say, okay, um, now I have muscle memory. So next time I do this, I'm going to be stronger and I'm going to be more flexible, and I think that that's such an I mean I, I sound like a yogi right now but it is an analogy I know but it's true right And it oh, well I wouldn't know um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> And it almost but not quite makes me want to try yoga
0: <laughs> Maybe we should do our next podcast through like a yoga podcast not a chance <laughs> <laughs> Okay so what's next for Francis
1: That's a great question Um you're
0: sorry. you're Okay so this trust thing is I mean first of all I I I really have learned a lot um from, from you on this topic. Are you... I, I think you're working on a book yeah, right Yeah, Ann and
1: I are writing okay. our second book together. Um, uh, and and Trust is going to be a big... So Will High Standards and Deep Devotion. And it's it's going to be written to individuals. So Uncommon Service was really written about organizations. And so anyone who cared about organizations yes. would read it. This, the unit of, the, of analysis, is the individual. And it's going to be everything we know written in secret memo form. Like it's just going to give the here's the understanding and here's how to overcome it. And we will, it will be all, everything we know, we're going to try to leave it all on the floor with this next book. So Francis,
0: how do you write a book? Like, I mean, first of all, just explain. Not alone. So
1: so Anne is a beautiful writer and we do very well in our partnership when we have a very hard thing to do together. So Child number one child mm-hmm. number two book number one yeah company book number two that's when we're thriving. That's like when you're, we, your best we're best we're best version of ourselves mm-hmm. and so the writing process is that Anne wakes up very early she does her best writing with her morning brain okay. and then I will try not to be the bottleneck for the next morning and I will edit it and then on the weekends we will talk about like how we might restructure it but it's a she writes in the morning. I edit at night. But to be clear, if you're asking who's writing the book, well, I'm a co-author. She's writing the book. That's okay. what happened with the first one. Yeah. I, I go and practice the ideas on the stage. So yes. she'll say I'm a very important contributor. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I think I'm
1: less important than she gives me credit for. <laughs> I love it.
0: All right, I'm going in a whole new direction. Please so do. You talked about like partnership. When you think about co-leadership or leading alongside and really putting your you know, if you're in in business, putting egos aside and having to really lead together with somebody, whether you're sharing responsibility for something. I just feel like, why aren't we saying more of that? I think that could be such a powerful thing. And I, you know, whether it be for allowing people to balance their, you know, work and personal life, but for a lot of reasons.
1: I think there's two reasons. One is, and I mean this in a little bit of a cheeky way, but we just haven't had enough women leaders and women will be more likely to do it. But if I do it on my serious way, it's not putting ego aside. Actually, it's not putting ego aside. aside. Everyone has an ego that needs to be nourished. We should just be explicit about what your ego needs are and nourish them and then be done with it.
0: How do you do that though?
1: By understanding that what nourishes your ego could very well be different than what nourishes mine. And that if we just figure out what it is you need and then we'll do it. So some people need external status. Some people need compensation. Some people need whatever it is. So I actually think one of the reasons co-stuff doesn't work is because we're not cognizant enough about, we're not paying enough honor to ego. I think ego is a very good thing. Mm-hmm. We should just figure out what your ego needs are, yeah. what my ego needs are, and then we'll super duper clean them up and I'm sure they'll be compatible. Where it gets tricky is if they overlap a hundred percent and then we think yes. it's a fixed pie and then they are probably not the right co-leaders. Right.
0: Because if, if both people need the external recognition, that's then it's going to feel then it's going to
1: be a little bit of a fight. Yeah, um, yeah. But they probably also aren't great at working together. Yes, also. yes,
0: um, yes. What do you think? When you think of, um, I guess for me, I, th- I think about some qualities that women tend to naturally possess: vulnerability. And when I say vulnerability, I don't mean weakness. You know that. Yeah. You know it's it's being yeah. willing to be open. You yeah. know, I'll have the conversation yeah. you just talked about: inclusiveness, empathy, authenticity. Yeah. I feel like these are traits that tend to be more innate in women. I know I'm generalizing a little bit. Yeah. No, no, uh... no. And historically have been leadership traits that we've been taught to maybe suppress because they're seen as not what's needed to be an effective leader. And I feel like in in today's world that we're in, where people are searching in this digital world for this human connection, right? Um, The people crave that. Do you see a change in kind of the leadership profile and what, well tomorrow's I would, leaders are. Yeah, be. I do.
1: And you know, and I do think that probably by gender we go through different nurturing processes. So what yeah. you're saying is you're you're observing a central tendency, which is more women will tend to exhibit this and that. Yeah. It's probably not innate because of gender, but it is probably a really reliable outcome because of the nurturing that went yes. on. But here's what I would say why I'm super duper optimistic about the future. Millennials have had a lot of similar nurturing to one another. So take a random sample of millennials and they're probably going to want the same amount of work life balance whereas 40 years ago if you took a random sampling of people i don't i think that there would have been more of a gender really? breakdown yeah millennial like just thank goodness for millennials is what i was what i say they have such a high threshold for what they'll endure. Like they're not going to do something because someone told them to do it. Yeah. That used to happen all the time yeah, totally. by, by people. Yeah. They're not going to sacrifice their lives on the altar of an organization unless there is a great deal of nobility in what the organization is doing. So I but I find millennials to be much more similar to one another and then different from the prior generation in ways that are really exciting to me. Right, so right. I think we're going to see a lot of like, if you find someone fighting for gender rights as yes. in you know, millennials, the probability of it being a man or a woman gets pretty close. Right, right. Um, that's a
0: great, that's a yeah. great observation. So you are also seeing, you know, the generation Z. In, in your classrooms and, and entering yeah. the workforce. You know, and I've mean, got kids in yeah. So tell me what you see. I'm so
1: optimistic. Okay. Like, that we are going to give the... We're going to give the world's hardest problems to them, I feel really good about. Because they... The chance of them having self-interest, like the chance of a financial crisis in the past, which, honestly, I do think it was because some people wanted to capture way more value than they created and were willing to sacrifice the many for a few. So much less likely to be done by the millennials. Like, they just... They have values and a desire to work together. They experience diversity. Like, even we have to teach one another about diversity. Millennials have grown up with much more diversity. So I think that our handing off the hardest challenges, or let me put it differently, I wouldn't try to solve the hardest world problems without millennials also mm-hmm, in the room.
0: Mm-hmm. And do you see millennials, I mean, obviously a lot of companies are focused on, I think millennials yeah. are sick of people talking about them as millennials, especially in the business yeah. world, right? You, you work with millennials every single day. Every day. But a lot of people in the workforce don't have that experience, yeah. but they know that there's something there that they need to tap into. Yes. Right? Yeah. So do you see millennials holding leadership positions in a different way, in a much sooner way, in a much less traditional way? Than we see today, 10 years from now.
1: Uh, um, as long as the people, they're either going to have to start up their own companies to yeah. do it. Okay. And the smart organizations will accelerate people into leadership much sooner than they ever have in the past. So millennials aren't going to wait.
0: Yes, exactly. The 20, they don't and 30 have to. years. They and, don't have
1: to. And nor should they.
0: Okay. So um, I want to do a fun lightning round oh, good. here. Oh, good. Okay. So this is just like, I'm going to just go, we're going to go in a lot of go. different, we're going to explore the space. Let's do it. Okay. Um. If you could have dinner, you can't say Anne okay. with any person in the world tonight besides me, who would it be?
1: So uh, alive, the person that has to be alive.
0: Well, yeah. And then, yeah. And then the second question okay. would be who is the person who doesn't have to be alive that you can Well, the person
1: up? that doesn't have to be alive, let me do them okay, first. Okay, do that. Um, Paulo Freire uh, was a, um, a Brazilian activist that also taught adult literacy in the jungles of Brazil He came to um, learning by advocacy. I learned more about how to teach by his small pamphlet on teachers as cultural workers. And it unleashed in me to be presumptuous um, that every time I interact with someone, it's a chance for... Us to unleash yes. them. So, I would just love to understand how he came to it. His writing is beautiful, and by the way, he writes really short books, okay, I'm totally which I appreciate. I'm gonna, I'm gonna yeah. That so, Paulo Freire. Okay. Teachers as cultural workers. If I could have dinner with anyone today,
0: it would be Oprah. Oh, that's a good choice.
1: And and it would be my under. I would really want to understand why she wouldn't want to run for president. It doesn't make sense to me, and so I'd like to hear it. I'd like to hear it from her. And then I'd also like to try to convince her otherwise.
0: Well, if there's anybody who can make that happen, it's, it's, it's <laughs> the person sitting next to me right now. Okay. If there was one book that you would recommend for somebody who is in business, um, somebody who is in leadership. I, I mean, and I'm not going to give you any, okay. you know, around this topic. Like, what is one of the most impactful books that you yeah. would recommend? That would- yep.
1: So uh, it's called The Fearless Organization. It's written by Amy Edmondson, whose dissertation work created the concept of psychological safety. And, but it's how to create a fearless organization, which is what a lot of what can be described as what's holding organizations back is that we become filled with fear. This is how do you create a fearless organization organization written by one of the best scholars of our time.
0: I love it. I love that concept. and I agree with you wholeheartedly because I think fear tended to be an emotion traditionally people would use to drive. Right. I just don't think there's any room no, for it. There's no. There's no room for it. you talk about millennials, like not no interested. No room for it.
1: No room for it.
0: Okay. So last question. When are you at your happiest?
1: I have accomplished something on behalf of others during the day and I'm cuddling with my family in the evening.
0: You're an awesome person, and I'm very honored to call you my friend. Oh, thank you for being with me. Thank you for this. I really All right, appreciate I look forward it. to seeing what's next in that next TED Talk and the book.
1: I, you're going to be in it.
0: I can't wait. Okay. I can't wait. Bye. Thank you, Francis. <laughs> This is Jennifer Morgan, and you've been listening to A Call to Lead. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you haven't left a review or given a rating, please do. I want to hear from you. What did you like? Who do you want to hear from? What do you want to hear more of? It would be awesome. And I hope to see you next time on A Call to Lead.